1: Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources, I'm Callum MacDonald. Thank you so much for being here, lovely to have you there. And always on the podcast, the brains and brawn of Scottish politics, the iron and brew of political conversation, we've got Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond when he was First Minister. Hello Jeff.
2: Hello from a, a very drich Aberdeen. Haven't seen the sun in literally a week. Oh, I'm surprised it's only a week.
1: Um, also here, Andy McKeever... <laughs> who <laughs> was the Director of Communications <laughs> to the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Hello. Very anti-Aberdonian
3: comment there. <laughs> I mean, say.
1: it's more anti-Aberdonian weather, I think it's fair to say.
3: Uh, <laughs> it's very nice in Edinburgh today, I have to Good. say. Very nice in Edinburgh.
1: Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great to have you with, uh, with us, Andy and Jeff. Right. Since we last spoke on the podcast, SNP MP Joanna Cherry is now actively threatening to take legal action against an Edinburgh venue which cancelled a fringe show in which she was due to appear. You heard from Joanna Cherry on this podcast last week speaking about many things, including this. Well, the update is that she says she will take, quote, whatever legal action is necessary unless the stand admits that it acted unlawfully, issues an apology... And reinstate the event. The stand hasn't yet responded to Joanna Cherry's comments. We are recording this in the afternoon of Tuesday, the 9th of May. So by the time you listen to this, that may have updated, of course. And we were discussing this in a bit of detail with Joanna last week, guys. And I just want to bring you this email from Jennifer just to sort of lead us into our conversation. Which says, Dear sirs, thanks, Jennifer, it's very formal. Enjoyed your most recent podcast and discussion with Joanna Cherry. However, it was disappointing to hear the presenters, Jeff and Andy, admit that they had purposely avoided the debate on gender recognition reform because of the toxicity. Jennifer goes on, there are many people, particularly working class women, who haven't had the opportunity to avoid the debate because of their need for single-sex spaces, such as female prisoners, victims of rape, domestic abuse victims, disabled women or women with disabled children. Of course, they would also not wish to have to be involved, nor to be having to attend events that trigger threats of violence. However, they don't get given much choice. Of course, if more people spoke about the issue and normalised discussing it, the bullies who seek to prevent discussion through intimidation would have a much more difficult job, says Jennifer. And so, Andy, putting together kind of Joanna Cherry's latest and Jennifer's thoughts as well um, lets us talk about this for another couple of minutes. Um, what do you want to start with?
3: I don't, I don't disagree with Jennifer's email, and I won't speak for Jeff. but I don't... Um, it's often, you know, when I, when I have declined sometimes to get into a debate about that issue, it's with a bit of a heavy heart, but I've just taken a personal decision that it sometimes just isn't worth it for what comes back in the other direction... I, but I do appreciate what Jennifer says. And in fact, I mean, I've got four daughters all of school age. And when I have put myself into this debate and I've done probably two or three columns on it, including in last week's Herald, if Jennifer wants to, to look at it, because I did tackle it there. And I took a lot of flack for it when I did as well. Um, the the reason I get into it is because of my daughters, really, and because I think there are some things which I can't not see. When i have the opportunity to do so but I, I, it's not with any glee or pride or anything else that i sometimes just back out of that debate sometimes i just feel like i don't need the hassle and you know that i'm sure that is true of both sides but i can really only speak about um and i also don't like using the word sides here because i have a lot of sympathy with some of what was in the bill and i have i, I don't have sympathy with other bits of what is in the bill as well and i just feel like we are In a place in Scottish politics, not just Scotland, but throughout the UK as well, but I think it's worse in Scotland. We are in a place in Scottish politics where nuance doesn't work. Scottish politics is the place where nuance goes to die at the moment. Um, And if you try to take any kind of reasonable middle ground position, especially on an issue that is as difficult as this one then you're effectively unable to do it because everybody wants to put you in a box, one Mm. box or other. So, uh, you know, you can either take flack from one side or, as happens to me quite frequently, you can take flack from both, actually. Um, But sometimes, and there'll be others like me, and obviously Jeff mentioned last week that he was the same, there will be others like me who just think to themselves, you know, I I sometimes have a platform on radio and on TV and in newspapers, and frankly, if I've got a choice of what to use that platform for, Mm. I just usually don't pick this.
2: I think Jennifer makes... Uh, fair comments, fair challenge. Uh, it sticks in the crawl with me, as I said last week that I hadn't been a bit more outspoken about it. I'm not a shy, and retiring person, but last week's podcast was actually, believe it or not me trying to mm. to speak about it in a substantial way. Two things, firstly, I did say, and I still believe that the stand choosing to kind of cancel Joanna Cherry was absurd, uh, and I gave my reasons uh, for that. But secondly, and and sadly Joanna had to leave the the podcast to vote, um, I wanted her views on whether this Section 35 order would be successful. But let's assume for the sake of argument that it's not. There's going to have to be some compromise around this issue at some stage. Uh, We don't know how the Scottish Government will react to a defeat in the Supreme Court, but if there's going to be any advance on this policy, uh, I can't see any way that happens without some compromise. And that's going to take Uh, Both sides, and again, I don't like using that terminology, as Andy indicates, for the reasons he indicates, but there's going to have to be some give and take. Uh, And so this issue isn't by any stretch of the imagination over with, but we're going to have to have compromise.
1: And do you think that Joanna Cherry's pursuit or threat of pursuit of legal action, what does that do to the conversation and to the discussion in the sort of medium to long term?
2: Yeah, I think it's important we've got to try and disentangle the two, though. The, the, this is a, a, a specific situation in which Joanna Cherry's clearly uh, taken legal advice from pretty preeminent uh, legal opinion as well um, uh, and believes that her freedom of speech has been curtailed. So although the, the, the base issue is the same, uh, uh, the reality is this is much more about freedom of speech. Will it be uh, successful uh, it's quite interesting I've, I've taken soundings from recent of uh, uh, quite serious lawyers and um, they think it will be successful and if that is the case, I do wonder how this debate is carried forward. We'll have to wait and see of course but clearly it would set a bit of a precedent for wider discussions about the bill as well
3: Yeah I mean I think that's right I, I, Je- I was going to make the same point. Jeff is right to disaggregate the two issues. this is primarily a free speech uh, consideration at the moment. Um, rather than one about the bill. But one thing that uh, Joanna Cherry did say in the podcast last week, which I think is something that, in, in a, and ironically, could be a unifying uh, thought, actually, which is that she also didn't agree with the use of Section 35 by the UK government. Uh, her phrase, I think, last week was, it's a Scottish problem that we need to fix in Scotland. Um, and that, ironically, is something that could bring uh, quite a few people together, um, in that you know this is something which the Scottish Parliament may need to revisit and fix um, without the sort of constitutional drama over. I mean, we're, we're going to get some constitutional drama now, of course, but actually, when ultimately when this gets fixed, and as Jeff says, it's going to have to get fixed at some point in some way. When this gets fi- gets fixed, it'll have to be fixed by Holyrood, um, and it may be. It may be, I mean, I'm maybe a bit too optimistic here, but it may be that we still do have the chance to have some sort of compromise and to try to take a bit of the sting out of this by meeting various different groups of people in the middle, which actually is probably not all that hard on this issue.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jennifer, thank you very much for your email. You can email any time, of course. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. If you've questions or your own analysis or you want to reflect on things that you've heard, we're always glad to hear from you. And by the way, just to recap, if you scroll through your podcast feed to our previous episodes, you will be able to hear those interviews with Joanna Cherry, also the Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar, the former Health Secretary Gene Freeman, former Conservative Scottish Conservative leader Ruth Davidson, and of course our exclusive conversation with Kate Forbes just after the SNP leadership contest concluded. And this is only episode 14, so stick around. This is the place for your best Scottish political insight and analysis. Today we turn to polling because we have got for you exclusive access to a brand new poll on the state of play for the SNP and for other parties as well, in the midst of this chaos around the governing party's finances. So throughout this episode, we're going to bring you the polls, findings and implications for Scottish political parties and their potential successes in elections at Holyrood and Westminster. We've got the latest indication on support for independence, and we'll tell you as well about the popularity of party leaders, both in Scotland and at Westminster as well. So don't go anywhere, stay right there. The Servation poll was commissioned by True North, a strategic advisory firm launched last year by managing partners, Someone called Jeff Aberdeen, uh, and also Fergus Much. And Fergus joins us on the podcast. Hello,
4: Fergus. Hi there, Colin. Pleasure to be joining you. Great I think. to have you. <laughs> to
1: Regret that? <laughs> Not at all. It's great to have you there. And just to say that also on the line we have Sir John Curtis, professor of politics at Strathclyde University, who's going to hang around and unpack what all of this means. So let's just say a quick hello to Sir John. Hello, John.
5: Good afternoon to you,
1: Colin. It's so good to have you there. Right, Fergus, uh, first of all then, in this polling that you very kindly and exclusively shared with Hollywood Sources, just draw out some of the main themes that you have picked up.
4: I'll just give you a quick gallop through some of the the highlights, I guess. So there was 30 or so questions covering a whole range of subjects. There was energy, economy, and of course, uh, politics, including voting intention for Westminster, for Holyrood, for Scottish independence, and leadership ratings uh, for the main political leaders right across the UK. So getting stuck into Westminster voting intentions first, it has the SNP, and this is a Scotland-wide vote, let's remember the SNP on 38%, Labour on 31%, Conservatives on 18%. There hasn't been much movement amongst their numbers for some time. Lib Dems on 9%, and then other parties sweeping up 4% between them. I think it's safe to say there's definitely a trend in s p support ebbing away since the start of the year, certainly away from the high point in late 2020, so that was off the back of the the the, the, um, the pandemic. Um, Nicola Sturgeon was seen as a very strong, stable leader. Uh, the s p polled particularly well in that, In that time, they were registering, I think, 52%, certainly above 50% in in some pretty high uh, watermark polls then. But it is remarkable to think uh, that just three, four months ago, the SNP were putting all their eggs in the basket of a general election as a de facto referendum. Uh, They're nowhere near that 50% mark that was going to be their their test um, in, in, in that event. Uh, and, and things for the s and suppose, could get worse before they get better, probably to Labour's benefit. Um, and uh, that's kind of how things look for, for Westminster. Hollywood wise, um, constituency polling, um, we've got the SNP on 39%, that's down a bit on the last observation poll in April. Um, Labour 30%, Conservatives 19%, Lib Dems 9%, and the other parties on 4% between them. Now, of course, for Holyrood, there's a regional list vote too. Uh, that puts the SNP on not a particularly uh, impressive 32%, way, way down on where they've been in the last couple of years, down since the start of the year too. Uh, Labour on 26%, so just 8 points behind the SNP. Back in 2020, the Labour Party were only registering about 13% of the regional list polls. Um, conservatives again on that kind of stubborn nineteen percent level. Uh, the Greens they continue to do pretty well despite being the junior party party in uh, the Scottish government. There's no Nick Clegg effect there that they they get they get trashed because of the the decisions of the their, their seniors in government. They're they're um, commanding about ten percent in the polls. The Liberal Democrats getting 7% for the regional list uh, uh, at Holyrood. And then Alba, this is, I think, the first time that Servation has registered to Alba in their party polling. And uh, they come straight in at a uh, not insignificant 3%. Uh, let's remember in 2021, in the Holyrood elections, they got 1.6% of the regional list vote share Scotland win in 2021. So it'll be interesting to see how they fare in future polls and whether there's a bit of a trend established. So that's how it's looking on the the party polling front. If we take a dive into um, independence. Now, if if I was advising Hamza Yusuf, the figures on independence would be the ones that gave me uh, a bit of hope, perhaps something to hang his hat on there. Uh, So once the the fence-sitters are extracted from those results, you're looking at 48% of the Scottish population saying, yes, Scotland should be an independent country, versus 52% who, who say no. So despite all the woes of the s uh, the engine at the front of the independence movement train, let's be honest, people don't doubt the end destination, even if they if they are starting to doubt or not trust that the s are the ones they're going to um, uh, give their vote to in upcoming elections. So if Hamza Yusuf can perhaps shore up and then motivate that pro-Indy uh, vote over the next while, then perhaps not all is lost for him before he's even begun. And perhaps, and it is a fairly big perhaps, he can start to bring that sluggish S&P vote back up to the levels of support for independence, uh, which don't seem to be going anywhere in a hurry. So that's kind of how we're looking on the party voting and the ending voting.
1: Okay, that's really helpful context for our, for our conversation. I suppose, Fergus, just from your sort of strategic advisory point of view... What, was there surprises in here for you in terms of what you're noticing in trends and things? What is it that has really sort of caught your eye that you're going to take away uh, into that, you know, your advising role? You mentioned there if you are advising Hamza uh, Youssef, what you would kind of be be looking at. What is it that catches your eye about all of this?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, as as I say, the, the independence uh, support, 48%, 52%, it's gone, it's bobbed up and down a fair bit in the the early months of this year. Um, Despite um, the very torrid time that the S&P has been through, it's holding up very, very well indeed. Um, If you can start to, I guess, bring that back up to the level, um, the S&P back up to closer to the amount of of latent support there is for independence, then perhaps not all hope is lost. However, what I would say is momentum's a hard force to to swim against in politics. And we have seen a kind of gradual uh, ebbing away of the SNP vote uh, in recent months, which will take, uh, yeah, I think some concerted effort to to turn that uh, picture around. And actually, um, you you saw Nicola Sturgeon's best approval ratings and best vote for her party and highest support for independence um, at a time when it was events uh, that, that determined... Uh, that rather than necessarily something that was completely in the hands of her as leader, or or as the SNP as a party. And um, so you know, perhaps it's an external factor that that Abdul is going to need if, if if things are going to turn around anytime soon.
1: Fergus, thank you so much. It's so helpful to get the numbers set out for us, um, and that that teases up really nicely. And thank you to True North as well, who of course commissioned the survey and the uh, and the polling. Thanks for sharing it with the podcast. Great to have you on.
4: Thanks, Gunner.
1: Cheers, Fergus. Thanks, Fergus. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Right, let's bring in Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. John, let's just ask that same question. Of the polling that's been conducted here, what is it that's catching your eye?
5: Well, to be honest, I think so far as Westminster voting is concerned, what is catching one's eye is that despite what were some pretty horrendous pictures of the police uh, outside the home of Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Murrell... Um, which you might have thought would have done serious damage uh, to the SNPs standing in the opinion polls. The message, at least so far as Westminster is concerned, perhaps a bit more debate about Holyrood, is that it hasn't. This is the second poll to be conducted since uh, the arrest of Mr Murrell and the associated events uh, by a company that also polled immediately after the election of Hamza Yusuf as leader. Um, you know Support for the SNP is down by a couple of points, um, but that's it. And equally, Labour support is down by a point. All of this is frankly uh, within, potentially within the norms of something. Um, and that's in line with some, uh, uh, all the polling is not, is basically showing uh, that Labour support in the wake of the moral uh, um, arrest is pretty much uh, flatlining. Um, The truth is the SNP's difficulties, and they are quite considerable, go back a little earlier in the year. If you look at the numbers, basically the problem is, is whatever was Nicola Sturgeon's intention in resigning as leader, she has uh, uh, created a sequence of events whereby support for the SNP has gone down. But essentially support for the SNP went down and at the conclusion of the leadership contest, um, uh, uh, particularly for Westminster, um, and that, that is the period during which the SNP above all hit difficulty. And I'm afraid it's very difficult to avoid the conclusion that in electing Humza Yusuf, the SNP have created political difficulties for themselves. I mean, what's particularly striking when you actually look at, um, at the attitudes of uh, SNP voters to Humza Yusuf? Well, yes, he's got a positive rating, but... Um, it's a positive rating amongst those who voted for the SNP in 2019 of just over plus 20. Only 45% of uh, uh, 2019 SNP voters uh, say they think favourably of him, And this this echoed what the opinion polls were saying during the course of the leadership contest it, it itself. For good or ill, Mr Yusuf is not popular, not just within the wider Scottish public, but he is not particularly popular amongst um, SNP supporters. I mean, again... Look at how narrow his victory was in the leadership election amongst the membership, even though he had the vast majority of the public endorsements of SNP, MPs and MSPs. And there was, frankly, the emergence of remarkable disconnection between the views expressed by uh, the SNP's elected politicians and the evaluations that eventually came uh, from their membership. And, you know, what's also true, and again, we can maybe want to go to this later on, when I mean, if you compare the popularity of Humza Yusuf amongst SNP voters with the popularity of, for example, both uh, Nicola Sturgeon amongst SNP voters or Anas amongst Labour voters or Sikir Starmer amongst Labour voters, he is a long way behind. So the crew, and, and given what's now very clear, is that we've got this emergence of a gap between the level of support for independence which basically hasn't changed during, in the wake of the leadership contest or in the wake of the arrest of Peter Murrow, or, by the way, the emergence of the Labour Party as a uh, potential threat to the SNP. That uh, oft-expressed uh, uh, Labour Party wish and view that uh, the prospect of a, a, a Labour government at Westminster would diminish support for independence. There continues to be no support in support of that proposition. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the truth is that... Um, you know, we are looking at a situation where the SNP as a political institution is in, is in trouble, even though the cause for which it's in favour uh, isn't in trouble. And you can basically see this. You look at the innards of the polling, uh, whereas in the middle of January, 76% of those people who voted for the, for, the, for yes in 2014 were saying they'd vote for the SNP. That figure is now down to slightly below two thirds. So the SNP are losing the support of those who still believe in independence. So the SNP have to work out for themselves, how are they going to improve their popularity as an institution? That's their first job before they get anywhere close to beginning to try to start a campaign to try to increase the level of support above the 50% mark, which of course is the ultimate destination. And they certainly the one penny that's dropped inside the SNP during the course of leadership ballot is you don't hold a referendum until you know what the result's going to be. <laughs> and at the moment, neither side knows what the result is going to be. Therefore, holding a referendum is not in the interest of the other side.
1: Gosh, there's so much to get at, and we will do that right after this. <music> Right, Andy, I mean, let's go on, yeah. first of all, the SNP, as John outlines there, the SNP is losing the support of people who believe in independence.
3: Yes. Now, I think that is probably the single most interesting phenomenon that we've seen over the last few polls. I'm not sure, I mean, John may have expected it. I, I, I hadn't anticipated that would happen. I suppose there was a presumption that the SNP support drifted down. You might see a similar drifting of support for independence, which hasn't happened. So I think that disaggregation is really interesting, not least because it presumably means that some of those 48% who are indicating they're going to vote yes are also indicating they're going to vote Labour, mm-hmm. which is really very, very yes. interesting from an electoral point of view. We talked a little bit uh, in the last few weeks in this podcast about what Labour needed to do to get back soft unionists and to get back soft nationalists. Now, they've kind of got back the soft unionists almost by default already. And what this, I think, indicates is they might be starting to get back a few of the soft nationalists, but they're not turning into unionists. They're still soft nationalists. They're just soft nationalists who vote Labour. Now, that, I think, I mean, that'll be very buoying for an Asarwar. He'll be pretty comfortable with that. He doesn't necessarily need to turn them into unionists right now. He'd probably just rather, rather they voted Labour. So, I mean, I think that That is probably one of the most interesting uh, aspects of what we're seeing. And it probably involves a sophistication in that yes vote that we perhaps didn't necessarily understand was there. I think there's um, two other things that strike me from it. One is a kind of general point where you start to think what is the floor of SNP support? You know, there there must be a number at which it doesn't really matter how Hamza performs or what happens with the police or anything else, there'll still be a certain proportion of the population that will just vote SNP irrespective, and it's interesting to see if, we, you know, if we're approaching that number. But the other interesting thing, I think, is that I've begun to wonder over the last few months whether or not the SNP can actually deliver independence, or whether we talked about how broad the church is. You know, if you look at the people who voted no the last time, who could have voted yes because they're not diehard emotional unionists, they're fairly pragmatic centrists, They didn't vote yes because there was no economic case. The SNP nor the Greens are making an economic case. And it does start to make you wonder that if that yes contingent, if that 48% is showing themselves to be able to vote for different parties than the SNP, does that not mean that a centrist pro-independence, pro-growth, pro-business type of party could actually be a very useful addition to the independence movement and could potentially push them over the line. <laughs> John's making
5: yeah, but faces and I, like I,
3: gasping.
5: But, but I, I, and, and, Andy, you are ignoring the the great strength that hitherto, at least, the nationalist movement has had politically over the unionists. Unionists are politically fragmented. Yeah, um, and, and yeah. If we were to have an in referendum anytime soon, whether or not the unionist campaign could actually, in any sense at all, uh, fight a campaign that they can manage to agree on is probably extremely d- doubtful. Uh, in contrast, the dominance of the SNP on, of the nationalist vote... Uh, is the great, one of the great attributes of the independence movement. Well, indeed, the, frankly, the only reason why there is a pro-independence majority in Hollywood is because the electoral system rewards the unity of uh, the nationalist vote behind the SNP as opposed to the fragmentation of the unionist vote between the Conservatives uh, uh, and the Labour Party. But, but is it not ra-
3: possible they've peaked, John? I mean, could they have... I mean, the SNP is an electoral force with 64 seats at Hollywood and 48 at Westminster. There must be a viable chance... That that is the peak, and that will never be reached again.
5: Well, I mean, the SNP did get more, an overall majority back in twenty eleven, Andy. So, look, like, you know, um, I think, I, I mean, I, I mean, where I agree with you, and I regard this as the fundamental failure of Nicola Sturgeon's last six months, is the failure of the uh, the SNP and the Scottish government to start the debate about the economics of independence in a post-Brexit environment. We have to remember, The debate about independence is not the same as the debate about independence back in 2014. The debate in 2014 was simply about whether you want to be inside or outside the UK. The debate now is whether you want to be inside the UK but outside the European Union, or do you want to be inside the European Union but outside the UK? And that raises all sorts of trade-offs, for example, which single market do you think it's to your advantage to be a member of? The relatively small single market of the United Kingdom, but one which is economically more highly integrated, or the much bigger single market, the European Union, but one which is less highly integrated. Answers plead on two, on two sides of A4. These are <laughs> quite complicated trade-offs. But the point is, we have not so far had that debate. Um, public opinion has caught up with the fact that the choice has changed because there is now a very clear relationship between people's attitudes towards Brexit and uh, their attitudes towards independence support for independence when I was last able to measure this using people's current attitudes was three times higher amongst those people who want to be be inside the EU as it is amongst those who want to be outside. Whereas if you go back to 2014 there was no relationship at all between people's attitudes towards the EU and whether they voted yes or no. So the, the electorate have begun to cotton on to the fact that the intellectual question is different. But because of COVID And then the great misfortune that the Scottish Government published its white paper on the economics of independence on the very day that Jeremy Hunt was waving the white flag of a quasi quartine tax cut. (laughs) So that didn't get anywhere. They have, and now of course they got themselves embroiled in their their internal arguments and have done themselves institutional political damage. They're not, not in a good position to pursue that argument. But at the end of the day, what, I mean, again, the argument about a de facto referendum was a complete and utter waste of time. I mean, until recent events, which has seen the SNP start to lose support amongst yes voters, you did not have to say to the electorate that the next election was a de facto referendum. Elections in Scotland had already become de facto referendums. If you look at what happened in the Holyrood election, you're looking at 85 to 90% of current yes supporters voting for the SNP and less than 10% of current no supporters voting for the SNP, which is a very, very different picture from what happened in 2011, when the SNP got its overall majority, that was done on the back of the support of two-fifths of those who, had, who were at that stage opposed to independence. So, um, you know, uh, you didn't need to call for a de facto referendum. The way in which the next general election is about independence is about whether or not we end up with a hung parliament in which the SNP might have leverage. That has always been what the next election is about. It's still what the next election might be about, except that of course, and this is where things have gone wrong for the SNP, A, the Labour Party is now much further ahead of the Conservatives in the UK wide polls, which makes a hung parliament less likely. And now, of course, because of The rise of Labour, first of all, the Conservatives' expense and now more recently the SNP expense, Labour do now have a serious chance of picking up a number of seats north of the border. That, again, reduces the chances of of the SNP having leverage. But in the meantime, the other thing that nationalists have to do is very, very clear. Unionists don't want to engage in the debate. They do not want to admit that there is now a new intellectual question facing Scotland. That Their response throughout is what well, you said um, a decade ago that this was a once in a generation event. And by the way, we think most people in Scotland don't want a referendum, which by the way, the polls do not support, but they'll keep on repeating it anyway. What above all, and this is where the penny has dropped correctly on the nationalist side, what the nationalists need to do is to get the debate on independence in the post-Brexit environment started. They have to come up with an intellectually convincing case, um, first of all, and one that then they can sell persuasively so that they can move the dial above the 50% mark. And the crucial thing about doing that is not that necessarily it makes the referendum any closer. But if the support for independence begins to be consistently above 50%, not because of the COVID pandemic, which is what happened in 2020, but because it's clear that those on the S side are beginning to persuade people, unionists will have to enter the debate because at that point, they will be discovering that it's no good simply saying people don't want a referendum, which is never, ever going to persuade anybody of the unionist case. And then we, then we will start to have a debate between the two sides. And in a sense, that's, uh, that's what... In the first stage, nationalists have to achieve. They have to achieve a debate, a debate that they get the unionists engaged in and which they then win. After that, you can then worry about process and how you get there. But until you get to that point, you're wasting your time trying to push for a referendum.
2: A couple of observations. Firstly, let me say, I think you said six months, the last six months of Nicola Sturgeon failing to make the economic case. I'd go further than that. I don't think there's been a... A, a, a systemic effort to improve the economic say, case since 2014, and certainly not since Brexit. And I think that has been one of the yeah. major, major failings.
5: Yeah, I was, allow, I was allowing for COVID, Jeff. Right, I'm kind of dating it from the point where you might reasonably argue that the COVID pandemic was no longer a preoccupation.
2: Surely, <laughs> sure, sure. Totally get that. The second thing is, I think we've got to remember in all of this is that the SNP is still winning. And uh, having spoken to some of the advisors around... Hamza Yusuf at the weekend, they were really fearing the worst in terms of being behind Labour. So there is some solace uh, there. But I was really struck about the conversation between you and Andy uh, about the, the, the soft nationalist that's moving to the Labour uh, Party. And that does uh, strike me as an interesting uh, debate to be had of whether um, Anna Sarwar is encouraging Keir Starmer saying, look, we can get these guys over. We can... Uh, dot the I's and cross the T's if we have a more solid offer on the Constitution um, in terms of enhancing devolution. And I do wonder if, uh, as Anna Sauer said in our podcast, they'll revisit the, the Gordon Brown Commission and seek to strengthen it. But I suppose my question for you, John, is given what's happened in England last week in terms of the local election results, and given this poll result for Labour, which, interestingly, doesn't show them advancing much, if at all, uh, is there any correlations to be uh, uh, drawn there? And and should Anastasia actually be, OK, uh, this is a good poll for us, but why aren't we advancing?
5: Yeah, I mean, the truth is, the results of the English Snow Collections, I mean, uh, on the one hand, you know, they certainly confirm that Labour is in a stronger position now uh, south of the border than they have been at any point since 2010. On the other hand, I mean, I've... It, I mean, local elections in England are even more difficult to understand than the STV system in Scotland for local elections, um, uh, in that not least people in England are markedly less likely to vote to vote in line with their uh, general election preference because Liberal Democrats just do an awful lot better in local elections. So it's very difficult to extrapolate from one to the other. But uh, various attempts to do so by essentially saying, "Well, was the swing to Labour what you would expect?" Uh, given the, the current position in the opinion polls, to which I think the answer is, uh, on, on most of these measures, it was somewhat short. And uh, given the Labour lead over the, the Conservatives at the moment is about 16, and on the conventional arithmetic, on the current boundaries, they might need a 12% lead, although that comes down if the Labour Party starts picking up seats in Scotland. Um, shall we say, um, Labour might have won a general election last Thursday, but it's not guaranteed and it could have been it could have been quite close. Um so and that certainly um you know I still think that the 64,000 dollar question about the next election is primarily one about whether well, not it's not whether labor win it's whether or not labor get an overall majority or not and that's the issue that's still in doubt and and it is on whether or not that it, uh, whether or not that does or doesn't happen that uh, the immediate uh, future of the uh, uh SMP and its leverage at Westminster uh, primarily rests. And, uh, you know, I think that that's still up for grabs. I mean, the only thing, by the way, because we've not mentioned them so far, um, this is not uh, the first poll. Uh, uh, but the, the, this poll also shows uh, the Democrats up, uh, notably by a couple of points. The polling south of the border had the little Democrats up just before the local elections, perhaps because uh, the uh, rules doing perder of, you know, requiring... Um, the uh, broadcasters to be even-handed meant that whereas so much of the media coverage these days at Westminster is con spokesman, lab spokesman, SNP spokesman, and Liberal Democrats get squeezed out, they weren't squeezed out during that three weeks. Um, uh, But we've now also seen uh, certainly one one opinion poll down south showing the Liberal Democrats rising uh, uh, yet further, which, of course, will potentially complicate matters as things get further. But, yeah, I think, you know, the fact that... I mean labor are incredibly lucky. I mean why are why are labor breathing down the SNP's neck? I mean I would not get into the innards of what the Labour Party is or isn't offering in terms of constitutional reform. I think the story is very simple. Part one of the story is Partygate. Part two of the story is Liz Truss and part three of the story is the SNP leadership contest. In other words, uh, the Labour Party north of the border is profiting from a sequence of mistakes from by their opponents um, and that basically by sitting still and not messing up and at least having both a UK wide and a Scottish leader who people at least regard as being respectable if not necessarily something they have a great deal of enthusiasm about um, the, the apples have been falling into Labour's lap, frankly on both sides of the border
1: in terms of what we're talking about John when you said you know labor uh, might have won a general election last thursday and the question going forward from here is not about whether labor win at westminster it's about their overall majority is should we or then not. or or not yes exactly should we then consider um, and perhaps jeff we should start with you on this what the snp's influence at westminster is what it, and what it could be is is it significant now could it be significant at some point or actually are they kind of just there to, to get a few jeers and cheers at PMQs?
2: Well, it's interesting. I think, listening to John there, I think a lot of the answer to that question dependent on how well the Liberal Democrats do and whether uh, they can uh, forge a relationship, a coalition or otherwise, with the Labour Party. But can I just bring your, your minds back a bit? <laughs> because I always find this extraordinary, the times we live in, when we're talking about SNP oh, getting 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50 seats in a, a general election... In 2010, when I was advising the party, uh, less than a year before the SNP recorded a majority at Holyrood, they got six MPs in the 2010 general election. So up until that point, the SNP had been fighting for one thing and one thing alone at Westminster elections, and that was relevance. And I thought it was interesting what Stephen Flynn was trying to do at the weekend. He was trying to move the debate on from uh, what has been uh, quite a crisis-ridden few weeks and months in the SNP and get people responding to him and try to show that, look, this SNP party under my leadership at Westminster uh, is going to have relevance and we're going to strike a hard bargain with Labour for their support. There's clear risks in that. And I think uh, Andy has got his own views on this particular uh, strategy. But I sympathise with Stephen Flynn. He's looking at an opportunity to say, look, we need to be relevant. If nothing else, we need to be viewed by the population of Scotland as relevant at this election? Because if they're not, we'll go back to those six seats pretty quickly.
3: I don't, I don't have a problem with Stephen Flynn's strategy. He's trying to use a mechanism. He's trying to use a narrative and a message that will get votes. I just don't think it's... It just doesn't reflect reality for me. I think the easy answer to the question of what influence will the SNP have at Westminster after the next election is they'll have none. I just don't think they'll have any. I mean, pardon the midweek bluntness, but I just don't see it. So let's say that Labour, let's say Labour have a relatively bad night and get 300 seats. OK, um, 20, what, 26 short of a majority. And the Lib Dems don't do as well as they might hope and they only add another 20. Uh, well, because firstly, if Keir Starmer has to look to somebody, he's not going to look to Stephen Flynn. He's going to look to Ed Davey. That's, a, that's an obvious given for me. He's not going to look to Stephen Flynn for help. If Ed Davey's help doesn't get him over the line, what's Stephen Flynn going to do about that? Vote vote them down. Vote against them. Uh, try and, Andy, try and, Andy, try and Andy, push to another general election where the Tories can get back in. I just don't see it. I think Keir Starmer's got Stephen Flynn over a barrel. I think they'll blink first because they'll know that if they do anything that potentially allows the Tories back into office, Labour will never ever let them forget it because they haven't for the last 40 years. I think the influence mm-hmm. of the SNP at Westminster is going to be extremely small, even if Keir Starmer needs help, John.
5: Andrew, you, you, you've, you've got... you've got to uh, go beyond the immediate reaction to the general election. I mean, there is no doubt that uh, the Labour Party will uh, basically attempt to form a minority administration and they will dare both the SNP and the Liberal Democrats to bring them down. but you now need to remember your history of the October 1974 Parliament, OK? But well, po- po- point one is, I mean, a lot of Labour people say, well, of course, we will be able to call another election at a time of our own choosing and be able to get an overall majority. That's what Howard Wilson tried in October 1974. And essentially, the strategy failed. And by 1976, when John Stonehouse went for a rather long swim off a of Florida beach, um, the Labour Party lost its majority. But then also remember what happened for a long time uh, in the 74 to 76 Parliament. The Conservatives were not willing to try to bring the government down. Until, until we reached a position in the opinion polls where it's perfectly clear that if the government was brought down and we were to have a general election, then the Conservatives were willing to bring that government down. And that's the point at which the Labour Party was forced to negotiate with the Liberal Liberal Party, the Lab-Lib-Pact. So the crucial thing is not necessarily what happens immediately after election. It's what happens when a minority Labour administration is in trouble and cannot contemplate the prospect of going to the country. And then they will face, the, and it may be a fascinating choice, do they do a deal with the Democrats, which might mean proportional representation, because their price is also a very high price for Labour, or is it to do a deal with the SNP um, uh, over independence? And uh, that that's the point at which the pressure would exist. It's not immediately after the election. It's if that minority administration gets into trouble, such that going into the country is no longer an option.
2: I, can I just so, add to that? Sorry, Andy, I know, I, I, I know you're yeah, coming here, but I just, I was nodding along with uh, Sir John there because he's, he's absolutely right. I've worked at both Westminster and Hollywood. And when you are at Westminster, losing a vote there, is a hell of a more significant thing than losing it in, you know, Holyrood or indeed in other devolved um, parliaments uh, because they sent blood very, very quickly. And Labour, if you're in this hypothetical, lose a critical vote because they didn't uh, negotiate with the SNP, have got to turn around to the electorate and say, aye, but OK, we'll go to the people now and we'll take this forward. Well, you couldn't take that forward yourselves before. It's a very, very toxic, hostile environment, and the Tories will be ready to pounce. So I, I accept what you say, Andy, and I do think the strategy needs finesse, somewhat by Stephen Flynn, but relevance for him and being able to uh, indicate what his policy priorities are is what he needs to do in advance of the general election. Yeah. What happens post the general election, he can pick and choose the moments where he wants to pounce if that happens and the numbers play out, and that is so, so important in Westminster politics.
3: I, I don't. I mean, I don't disagree with any of this, and I would, as I say, I would uh, emphasise that I don't have a problem with Stephen Flynn's strategy. I just, I'm just not sure it's real. Because just one other thing for my side of the balance sheet and this little argument here is that. The Tories will very likely be in absolutely no fit state to do anything at that point. They will be in the middle of a civil war about whether they are woke warriors or whether they are liberal free market economists, and they won't know what to do for five or six years. So I I just don't think they're going to be in any fit state to actually do anything about it, to be honest. I'm not saying, you know, a a strong showing by the SNP, however many seats they may you know, if they get 40-plus seats, which at the moment is probably exceeding expectations, clearly they will be a party of influence. I'm not saying that they are not a factor i just think it's wishful thinking to think that you know back in the days when it was ed Miliband and alex salmon's pocket in those tory adverts i just don't think we're there and i think it's wishful thinking to think that there's going to be massive amounts of influence being exerted here
2: oh, okay i'm gonna uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on i know we've got a lot to ask but look, look there's nothing to rally the cause of a party just defeated an election than being able to turn over your principal opposition who might be in government. And And Douglas Ross will do
3: the same thing. I mean, Sunak and Ross are going to fight uh, the same campaign. They'll try and put, um, you know, Hamza Youssef there with Keir Starmer in his pocket. They will try and fight this again because it gets their vote out too. But I think that is also an incredible strategy in a literal sense.
2: Yeah, I'll just say this, Andy. We're in hypotheticals of hypotheticals here. We need to see where the numbers lie. But if they do lie in that way, Stephen Flynn is relevant. Uh, and he will have some impetus. Well, we uh, can agree he, on and that. And bearing in mind at that point, of
3: relevance we disagree on, but I <laughs> totally agree. But, but, but he but was at, that,
2: <laughs> at that point, if the numbers fall that way, at that point, that's exactly the springboard you want going into a Holyrood election a couple of years later. Well, well, one last question, John. I mean, how important is the, the 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 chasm that's grown between the popularity of Anna Sarwar, who's at plus five, and Hamza Yusuf? who's at minus 12, going into a general election, bearing in mind that they're both Holyrood leaders?
5: Well, I'll give you the answer I always give to that question, which is leaders are the principal vehicle through which um, the message of a party is communicated. Um, If that leader isn't an effective communicator with the wider public, then you are at a disadvantage.
1: John Curtis, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. It's great to have you on. You're welcome. Jeff and Andy's still with us. I think, guys, I mean, hearing John break it down, hearing you guys add some analysis, what I just want to sort of get at, who is this a good poll for, who is this a bad poll for? Good poll, bad poll. Andy, where do you want to start?
3: Um, well, I think it's it's not a good poll for the SNP, but could have been worse. It's not a bad poll for Labour, but could have been better. I have to say, though, you know, don't want to kick my erstwhile colleagues in the Tory party in the teeth, but it's a shocking poll for the Tory party. I mean, it really is. Um, I think now, beyond any doubt whatsoever, the Tories are seen to be back to their core vote of the high teens. I think they've always been on that core vote. I think that the reason they've had higher votes over the last seven or eight years is because they've had a unionist vote on top of that core Tory vote. They've all gone back to Labour the Tories are absolutely back to the core vote and if you dig into the figures uh, from True North poll they're really terrible for the Tory party. So only 1 in 10 women will vote Tory. That's a really really bad bad figure. Only 1 in 20 under 24s, 5% of under 24s are voting Tory. And, you know, even if you look at Douglas Ross' approval ratings, and Douglas Ross is a perfectly... I mean, I know Douglas Ross is a nice guy, he's a completely competent guy. He could, in any other guys, be a perfectly good leader mm. if he was a leader of a different party. But what has been very clear is that what's going on with Hamza Youssef and what's going on with Nicholas Sturgeon, they're doing nothing for Douglas Ross, nothing. His approval ratings are either exactly the same or down a little bit. So the Tories are the only beneficiary from what's going on just now is the Labour Party. There's nobody else. The Tories are not benefiting from this at all. And it's just another really poor poll for them. So they are, they are. you know, you can argue as to whether it's a good or bad poll for Labour and the SNP. No argument about the Tories, I'm afraid, is a shocker. Jeff, yeah.
1: same but, question. Go on. Good poll, bad poll. Yeah,
3: yeah I mean,
2: look, let's not kill ourselves. Despite my valiant efforts during my discussion there, this is a bad poll for the SNP. It's not as bad as it could have been, uh, as Andy rightly points out, but the trend is against them. And when you're matching poll on poll from the same polling company, it, it doesn't make great reading. There is, It's only going one way. So that is problematic. Also for the SNP, if we delve into the figures and the tables, almost a third of SNP supporters are particularly sceptical about the green arrangement and the coalition. Mm. I think that's something that we've talked about before in this podcast, the need for Hamza Youssef to show a bit of teeth uh, I, I, and a bit of uh, uh, determination and robustness in the face of the Greens and that perception uh, about how influential the Greens are. I do think the Labour will be looking at going, yep, we'll take that. It's our strong second. We're ready to pounce. But privately, mm, after what we've seen in England, why are we not seeing us advance a little bit more? Totally agree with what Andy says. Liberals doing okay. I think they'll be reasonably pleased. There's some, some relevance, to use that word again, for them. And also, I think uh, my former boss, my gaffer, uh, will be a bit disappointed. if I didn't mention him at least briefly. To say He'll be quite pleased with 3%. But of course, making sure that materialises on election day uh, three years from now is uh, a different matter. But I think that would give them maybe one or two seats.
3: And just on that note of what materialises on election day, it's really important to remember the next election we've got is Westminster. It's first past the post and vote share doesn't matter. So that is an important point, especially when we're talking about the Tories. The Tories got six seats, on 25% of the vote in 2019. They'll get in the teens of the votes this time, but I think they'll keep all six seats. So, you know, and that will mask what would be a bad night. And at the same time, it might not change the Labour SNP dynamic as much as it looks like it might change things because it's first past the post. And I think just to add to that, Andy,
2: one thing that we saw in 2021 uh, was a real emergence of tactical voting around different seats, and I think that plays into what you're saying. I, I think the, the Tories will be expected to hold on to six seats because their principal opposition in those six seats is the SNP, and we anticipate their vote going down as well, which is why they'll hold on to them. But I do wonder if tactical voting, where there's some Liberal SNP uh, battles going on, might might uh, change things in certain uh, locations and regions across the Scotland. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all manifests itself. One thing's for certain... Uh, There's going to be a a massive, massive amount of attention on Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. You're now looking like you're winning, guys. The local elections have proved it. Now come out and tell us what you stand for. And I I know we've discussed this before, but I do think it's incumbent on him to start saying, OK, this is what I'm going to do. This is who I am and this is what my administration will seek to achieve.
1: Jeff and Andy, thank you both very much. And Jeff, thank you and True North for sharing the polling with us on Hollywood Sources exclusively. By the way, we really do appreciate that. It's great.
2: My pleasure. Wow. And I hope I hope Fergus is actually going back to make us some money, uh, <laughs> uh, because I'm certainly not doing it while I'm speaking <laughs> to you lot. <love. laughs>
1: and on that bombshell uh, Jeff Aberdeen <laughs> and your keeper thank you very much our thanks as well to Sir John Curtis Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde and to uh, Jeff's colleague Fergus Much, who set out the numbers for us as well your thoughts then on the poll what it means what it means going forward from here email us anytime hello at hollywoodsources.com make sure you follow and subscribe lots more to come from us in the coming weeks uh, thank you for being there this week and we'll speak to you again soon